Hello, everybody. We're bringing you Block Digest number 132 on Sunday, October 14th at Block Height. 545,743. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, everybody from snowy Colorado. How are y'all? Right. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not going to say where you're at. Um, I mean, I'm not in a, I'm not in a snowy place, but uh, I did swim in a river today and it's not swimming season, but I was not the only one because I'm finally in a country that people actually swim <laughs> in October. You're a lunatic. Sounds fun. <laughs> no, I, I was a lunatic when I was in the UK because in the UK, everyone's lies on the beach, but they don't go swimming because it's too cold. So I'm swimming by myself in this country. People swim. Alrighty then. Speaking of swimming and being underwater and drowning, I hope, uh, there is some possible uh, news regarding the Bitmain IPO. Although I have not actually been able to locate anything official from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, uh, a Bitcoin exchange guide a few days ago uh, posted a short article claiming that the president of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is pretty much saying that the listing of Bitmain on the exchange would not be possible at this time. And one of the, the main uh, concerns uh, as far as you know, the listing and cryptocurrency in general was the fixed costs. Uh, I'm assuming that he's kind of um, dually kind of commenting here on mining operations cost versus the, the wild uh, volatility in the prices that they're actually earning profit in. But also the fact that Bitmain kind of did their altcoin and uh, crypto accounting at cost. And so they're pretty much declaring their assets at what it costs them to purchase or acquire them instead of their current market value when looking at the, the valuation of assets under the company's holdings. And so, again, this is kind of tentative and I'm still looking around for anything actually officially stamped by the exchange or somebody involved with it. But if this is true, this this really really bite Bitmain in the ass here because they they've effectively just gone through a private funding round pre IPO and are kind of just floating on that 
with a huge amount of losses on the books that are unrealized in terms of cryptocurrency holdings and then huge losses in terms of obsolete hardware just sitting around in warehouses. And if this IPO doesn't actually work out for them, like this is going to start crunching really bad in terms of their revenue and the overall company valuation. Ouch, man. Oof. That doesn't sound good. Not possible at this time. I wonder if that's, yeah, we'll, we'll see whether or not some more official word comes out, but yeah, it's kind of funny, man. I mean, like I said, on the last episode, I was really kind of blown away by this ridiculous clock router miner they recently pitched and pushed out and sold with a bunch of old ASIC chips on it. And you could tell they're in a desperation mode. So something like this, I could imagine would be pretty uh, painful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be a little bit of a scheidenfreude that I, I would love to get my hands on. But yeah, that, that out of the way though, um, I guess first, since the Robini hearing in front of the Senate Banking Committee. And oh my God, was that just the most incredibly awkward thing I have ever seen. So <laughs> I've never seen two polar opposites of a discussion, right? Where it's like some very calm, very rational discussion. And then this person that just looks like they're on the edge of a roof about to fall off, just losing it. You bunch of yeah. shitbag shit coiners swimming in your own shit 24-7. What's wrong with you little shits? <laughs> <laughs> this idea of centralization, it just will not fly. But yeah, um, so if you haven't watched it, it was pretty much uh, Noriel Robini doing his best to fud the living shit out of the entire ecosystem. And then Peter Van Valkenburg from Coin Center kind of offering uh, a more positive analysis of things but mostly the uh pretty much the gist of the hearing was just dealing with the risks of the entire ecosystem and as well as blockchain technology in general in kind of dealing with um you know solutions to problems as far as centralized points of control and i i, I do have to give uh Peter a little bit of credit here because when asked for examples outside of currencies um, as far as what could realistically be decentralized in a meaningful way with blockchain, he his example was the DNS system and kind of pointing at huge denial of service attacks on that that widely disrupted the internet. And this is one of the few things out there that actually does make rational sense to utilize a blockchain for in, in terms of distributing central points of failure to the system. But Rabini's testimony was just the most absurd, crazy shit I've ever heard in my life. It, and it mostly consisted of him just screaming that fintech is not blockchain and we can use uh, fintech to revolutionize the payment industry, but but blockchain is a Ponzi scheme. And one of the, the, the big examples he gave for this was uh, WeChat and Alipay in China as kind of a positive example of how fintech can actually bring the costs and frictions and payments down in a way without blockchain. To which Peter responded uh, quite quickly, um, 
this is pretty much centralizing everybody's entire um, financial history in terms of who they're transacting with and for what in a single giant database that not only could be hacked, but is pretty much being directly used by the Chinese government to surveil the financial activity of every one of their citizens. It's kind of a fascist dystopia <laughs> and not something that's actually bringing any degree of freedom or utility without huge downsides to the population. And Rubini also had a, had a lot to say in terms of just shit talking Bitcoin specifically in any way he could fabricate. Um, he, he tried to make the argument in front of the committee that Bitcoin has a hard cap of five transactions per second that can never be increased. And therefore it is completely unscalable no matter what. And completely ignored um, things like Lightning Network. Or I, I wouldn't expect him to know about this, but it, things building on top of that, such as channel factories or the recent um, state chain that was proposed um, by Mr. Robini at the Scaling Bitcoin conference recently. And just and all, all of these decentralized alternatives aside, just the fact that <clears throat> somebody like Coinbase can facilitate transacting and move all of that off of the blockchain in a way that, while I, I'm not comfortable with those kinds of trade-offs, it definitely allows Bitcoin to scale in terms of transactions beyond five transactions a second. And pretty much continuing to make the ridiculous claim that a handful of Chinese people directly control the mining network and therefore Bitcoin is completely centralized. Um, that, that, that was one of his favorite buzzwords in the hearing. Development is centralized. Mining is centralized. The whole system is centralized, and that's never going to change. It's decentralization and distributed nature of all of this is just a lie, and it's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> and, like, uh, like, literally, everything that Rubini said during the, the hearing was either just an outright intentional lie or demonstrated that he had absolutely no clue what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> he, he even, at one point he went on to make the claim that because only a few tens of millions of people use Bitcoin um, 10 years into its existence, it's a complete failure and it's never going to go anywhere. And he pointed out how the internet had billions of people using it in the first 10 years. And no, it, it didn't. <laughs> the, the, the internet existed through the 70s, through the 80s, with maybe a few tens of millions of fat people dialing into bulletin board systems over the phone lines, using centralized systems where they would pretty much plug in a, like a, a dead drop where you would just have to connect to the server, do what you're going to do and disconnect. And pretty much passing information around was a very stop and go process that was not anything like what exists today. And almost nobody used it. E email was around for 15 or 20 years before companies like America Online came around and actually packaged it in a way that the average person could wrap their head around and actually use. 
So the, the one example he tries to draw between cryptocurrencies and the, the internet, he was just completely wrong. Like it, it took decades for the internet to become anything but a, a play toy for geeks and basements pretty much. But it's now something that literally if you unplugged right now, the entire world economy would crash overnight. Like we, we are entirely dependent on it. And it took it took 10, 20, 25 years to actually catch on in a way where it was more than just a niche thing used by a small group of people. And I mean, like really looking at this testimony, it just seems like he is the latest in a line of people who knew about Bitcoin very early on when it wasn't worth much at all. And he just kept calling it a Ponzi scheme over and over and over again while he watched everybody else involved make a shit ton of money and now he is just so butthurt and pissed off and losing his shit about it that he's going out of his way to testify in front of congress about how it's all a ponzi scheme and the whole thing's a lie with absolutely no factual footing to stand on whatsoever <laughs> yeah man we were laughing about that last night i think you left out one of his better claims even the flintstones knew better than crypto they had seashells i thought that was so funny i had to write that one down and uh yeah i just the way he started that thing off he said i'm an expert crypto finally has gone bust this year and he's just like going into this eight point bullet points of like why it's failing and it's busting right now where it's like you know where's that meme at of bitcoin in the grave going for fuck's sake guys like again come on i'm not dead and I mean, like, yeah, it sounds like he's definitely a little butthurt about that. And yeah, some of the other things I thought was just funny the way he just yeah kept repeating Russia and China, centralization, no scale, no security, massive centralization. And he kept yeah going back to Russia, China, mining everything. I thought a good thing, though, was to see that about half those uh, are really, I don't know if it was just Mr. Crapo, uh, the, the uh, person in charge of this council meeting at the Senate hearing, I think uh, he was pretty on the ball as far as just like sort of, I think all the senators actually were kind of good about weeding through the BS that Rabini was feeding the whole hearing. Like uh, pretty much most questions were directed at Peter after the two hadn't sort of like gave their introduction because it seemed like he was the more rational person, person to talk to about this subject. And you know, that was uh, that was a point where uh, Senator Kennedy came up and asked him about all this fintech that uh, Rubini's touting, like you were saying, the uh, the WeChat and the Alipay and uh, the way that that's used for surveillance. I thought it was like very right on the way. I think he said it not, you know, oh, it could be used for surveillance. I think he was pretty dead on saying this is a tool for totalitarianism and this is not. And this is something where I'm like. Glad to see this discussion coming into these different bodies in the government of the United States, where the question of do you stand for what this country is supposed to stand for or what others in this country are trying to achieve is really being brought to light. You can't look at Bitcoin and start arguing for this fintech whenever it's very apparent that it can be used in a negative way against its citizenry. And I think that was a very strong point that he made. And yeah, he was really just uh, on the ball talking about batch transactions, uh, Lightning Network, 
you know, talking about how uh, there's all these different things that are, are coming along that are very good and positive for individuals that didn't have a public infrastructure for value transfer. So um, that's it's great to hear uh, him talk to uh, the Senate about this. I hope they bring him back up there. I know Coin Center has been doing a good job over there in D.C. So, uh, yeah, it's good. Good to kind of see the slow, gradual progression of senators trying to listen to the more rational parts of these discussions. Well, even <clears throat> I wouldn't even say all the senators are as out of touch as people think they are. I mean, I, I forget his name, but one of the more skeptical senators of Robini, his first question after uh, one of Robini's rants about fintech is not blockchain and, and we can do all of these things with fintech was to point out well um yes that's possible and these things are widely deployed and used but <clears throat> in that situation you're still just going to be transacting in a fiat currency at the end of the day and his big issue with that was how irresponsible central banks have been and how they've just completely failed in pretty much their entire history at actually maintaining the value and the spending power of their citizens' currencies. And like he, he, that was the, the first thing he went to after Rabini started ranting about fintech, not blockchain. Well, yes, we could do that, but it's not fixing the underlying issue of the, the currency itself and how well it's functioning, it's storing value. Yeah, that was a point also. I was just like, as soon as he brought up, you know, it's like, yeah, it's aggravating. The Fed won't do this. And it's just like, you know, that is it's positive to hear these things come out of these bodies because, you know, for a while now it, you've been hearing these hearings and they're just like, I need a education on this. Can you teach me about it? That's the way these hearings have been going. So it's good to see that little small incremental steps where people are seeing the benefit of this and they're seeing like a reasonable discussion now where it's not so much just what is this? So I did not watch the hearing because the idea of listening to someone like Rubini for even, I don't know how long it was, but usually these hearings go for at least an hour or so. Like the idea of listening to him for any length of time was just nauseating to me because I mean, this guy has a reputation, like he's has this nickname, Dr. Doom. And then there's been a number of instances where, you know, he has these weird interactions with women. And I think it was 2014 where he accidentally tweeted, he was trying to DM someone. He accidentally tweeted at someone named Wenji and he's like, no, any hotties free for dinner? Um, I think he was in New York or no, he's in Chicago at the time. And so he's just a very creepy dude. And the fact that he's now like just tweeting about shit and over and over again on Twitter lately, it's just weird. And this whole, like there's been a campaign for the past three days or so to have him debate Vitalik. And it's just like, oh, wow. Like more conversations that I don't want to hear. <laughs> like... Um, and they're trying to find a moderator now and he like won't ex that for a while it was kevin fam uh which noriel i, I keep i'm gonna say noriel because it reminds me of l'oreal and i think of you know a l'oreal campaign with him on it saying something about shit coins um 
Yeah, so Kevin Pham was going to be a moderator, and then he took issue with it, saying that he was, is, let me bring it up. I probably have it somewhere. He said something about how Kevin was as creepy or sketchy as a as a Russian boxer or something. Anyway, they're trying to find a moderator for this stupid debate that I don't care about. Um, like I honestly, if Vitalik and him have a debate, like I, I honestly don't care who wins. <laughs> right. Like it's like if any of them win, it's going to still be a loss for everyone who had to listen to them talk. So, yeah, let me try and see. Well, I mean, that's that would have been the best part about Kevin because he would have made them both look stupid. But I mean, like all of this yeah. is like the the time honored tradition of a, a crypto Congress hearing at this point. Um, when somebody goes before Congress and talks completely inaccurate shit out of their ass, um, the entire internet goes to war with them, digs up every stupid thing they've ever done and embarrasses the shit out of them in front of a million people. Right. That's what so. happens when you lie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, rightfully so, I think, you know, it's like uh, somebody made a comment that, yeah, we can't just let these people talk so blatantly bad about a system that we know is going to be very positive and uh, just let them trounce over it without pulling up their history to sort of expose who they are. And uh, some of that history is a little tender Twitter, a little sleazy, uh, like you're saying, you know, it's uh, the guys, you know, it's not all that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a funny situation for sure. The, the one thing I didn't like is that apparently Peter Valkenberg said something about how Bitcoin is transparent, which means it can be traced, which means law enforcement should like it. I did not like him pushing well, yeah. that as like a positive. Yeah. Let, let me. He yeah. was making some very pro-regulatory arguments, but honestly, as much as that aspect of Coin Center really disgusts me i mean they're the reason ethereum got a, a pass as far as being a security uh i'm happy to let congress think that for a while while we work on things to fix that yeah it's yeah. kind of give and take with all that and uh you know it seems like because the question where that first came up was from a law enforcement senator and it's like some of these guys where it's like this is a real blue collar guy who got elected to office and he's there in the Senate trying to manage, you know, all these different lobbyists as well as his constituents. And it's just a busy dude. I could generally see someone like that not understanding that much of the tech to where if you bring up the idea of pseudo anonymous transactions and the possibility of making those uh, so obscure that they're practically anonymous for all intents and purposes. I mean, that's where, you know. I don't know. I think you're going to scare away some people that are pretty important in their decision making as far as the way this is all going to move forward in this country. And uh, yeah, it's kind of pick and choose your battles on that. It's like, how deep do you want to send them down a rabbit hole thinking about these things in a different in a light you don't like? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I have a meme for everybody, guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Old man uh, yells at crypto, Rabini edition. <laughs> oh, man, I got to put on screen share real quick. I got to check that out. Hold on. Ah. <laughs> Way to go, Plomo. 
Yeah, so the only, I don't know, the only good thing that I think really came of this is that it shows how utterly incompetent and ridiculous these so-called, you know, economists are. Like, I can't think of something more embarrassing for them as an entire field to have this guy who is supposed to be, you know, some renowned economist to come out and talk like this and get completely schooled by, you know, Peter Falkenberg. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is like the reality of the situation, right, that they understand there's a problem with world economics and the way that it's run like since 2008 like these guys don't have any sort of accountability coming towards these people that are in charge of the way that they are building legislative you know leg laws and i mean that's just a that's a big problem with the way that governments are supposed to govern their constituents so it's an issue for them too and i'm sure they see the reality of the situation where they can kind of you know peer through it but some of them Mm -hmm. But, you know, overall, the hearing was just, ah, it was a nice snack of schadenfreude. <laughs> <laughs> right. Some good laughs for sure. Mm -hmm. All righty, though, Janine, want to take us into the next one? Yeah. Sorry, eating chocolate. So, um... <laughs> oh, man, that sounds good. <laughs> um, so uh, if you watched the last show, I was talking about civil, uh, which is this um, consensus-backed, uh, well, it doesn't actually exist yet. It will be a consensus-backed uh, platform for journalism that uh, is having the last, uh, I think it's, it ends tomorrow. So they're in the last 30 hours or so of their token sale, which... Uh, obviously is not going very well because they still need um i mean assuming i haven't seen any new figures since they released the transparency report but at best i'd say they might have crossed the two million dollar mark so they still need at least five to five to six million dollars and there's no way they're going to get that in one day unless a whale comes in but even if a whale does come in well they're the whole point of their platform is kind of mute because it's supposed to be about democratizing journalism and all of that and influence of journalism but one of the funniest things that happened in the last couple of days is uh you may have seen that wikileaks had a new release and it was a map of amazon's servers around the world and uh, called Atlas, Amazon Atlas. And one of the things they did for that release on October 11th was to make it available via IPFS. And it's like, well, that's very interesting because, you know, a few days before that, I was getting told by people that not only was WikiLeaks not a legitimate media organization uh, and therefore their own experiments in using the Bitcoin blockchain for, for example, um, archiving links to the Cablegate files was not good enough or didn't qualify. Well, I wonder if they qualify now because now they've actually released their material via IPFS, which is one of the things that Civil plans to do and hasn't done yet because, well, they don't actually exist. So I made a suggestion on Twitter that instead of, you know, continuing with this absolute embarrassment of an experiment uh 
Joseph Lubin should instead give, I mean, at least 1.1 million, which is what he paid for, for the tokens that he bought the share of tokens. Uh, but potentially up to the 5 million in total that he gave them as, you know, early funding in September, he should give that to WikiLeaks because, well, it, WikiLeaks is decentralizing journalism and they're using the exact same tools that, uh, that, you know, Civil says they're going to use and they've already demonstrated that they know how to use it and they have a working IPFS gateway now for one of their publications. So technically they've done more decentralization of journalism than Civil has. And they are not even trying. Like this is just a thing they wanted to do because they're like, don't like centralized clouds? Well, you can try out our experimental gateway. Like, I mean, I, I would give that $5 million instead, uh, considering also that they have a 10-year track record, at least 10 years, uh, whereas Civil doesn't. It hasn't even started. Uh, but one of the other things I found funny, because uh, I haven't really looked through their website very much, uh, but if you go to the main page of their website, they have this thing where uh, you can make different... Uh, they have like different categories for people who buy tokens. And I'm not, I have to say, I'm not at all surprised that they basically ended up in a situation where they had a bunch of small backers, like a handful, and then one big benefactor, which was consensus, ironically, which is also, by the way, I noticed Boy. that in Infero, which is the um, AWS for blockchain, uh, service that they're going to be using. Infura is owned by Consensus. So not only has Consensus given them the majority of the money to fund them and bought the majority of their tokens so far, they're also going to be controlling the infrastructure that Civil is going to be running its nodes on because apparently they can't self-post that either. Like, who who knows why? Um, I, I actually, I got it. It was so funny. I debated with one of the developers about... The fact that the CEO of Civil or one of the CEOs, it seems like there's a bunch of management people in this thing, uh, which might explain why they're having so many problems. Um, but I noticed that the C one of the CEOs of Civil had posted a wiki about how Civil works and didn't it didn't work. But anyway, I asked, like, why the hell is this? It was posted on Google Docs, which I thought was hilarious because it's like you're building a decentralized content or journalism platform and you can't even post your own wiki on ipfs and the response i got from a developer i think his name was nick was that oh well that's a very specific use case and it would take away resources from you know building this project and i'm like what <laughs> like how is setting up a wiki on ipfs so different from what you're trying to do but whatever they can't self-host their own wiki which is just it's just embarrassing. Um, one of the categories on their website for buying tokens is called Metafactor. And uh, it has all of the perks of the other two categories, which is participant and contributor. And a benefactor is someone who gives between $10,000 and $2 million. And one of the benefits of being a benefactor is that you get, quote, uh, to exercise significant voting power which I thought was hilarious because it's like, hmm, you're trying to make a democracy where people like everyone gets a say uh, in how journalism is created and also in like what literally what is truth. That's what they're trying to do. 
and they want to say, hey, if you give us a lot of money, you get significant voting power. It's like, oh, that sounds exactly like the problem that proof of stake has been trying to solve and failing at solving for basically forever. So yeah, not at all surprised that they're in the situation they're in. I also find it pretty funny. Uh, let me try and find it really quick. There's a uh, one of the partners of Civil, which I think I mentioned in the last episode, was something called Popula. And it's run by someone named Maria Bastillos. And she's been commenting on some of my tweets. Uh, and I have also looked at how she's responding to other people because right now Civil and everyone who's partnered with it is in like full-blown promotion mode like hey please buy these tokens here's how you can it only takes 10 minutes please buy them like we need to we need to we need to save journalism with tokens and she one person pointed out to her that um you know ethereum is a poor option for storing data like this uh because look look what happened with crypto kitties and all that and her response was i could not disagree more uh, with civil, I'm not paying for storage. I'm paying for decentralized archiving. And I just thought, wow, major facepalm because it's like, I'm sorry, is there a difference between archiving and storage? Can you do archiving without storage? <laughs> I don't know exactly how this works, but apparently Ethereum is a magical tool that allows you to archive things without actually storing them and, you know, having to deal with the the problems of how do you allocate storage and resources and all of that, you know, apparently that's not a problem, but I can see why these people are so enthusiastic if they think that that's the case, that you don't have to think about the storage costs or what is going to happen when a, a bunch of these journalists like Forbes are making copies of their really weird content and putting it in the, in the Ethereum blockchain. Um, I just, I'm sorry, like I, I've never read a single Forbes article that I thought, wow, this should be preserved for like even a year because <laughs> most of them are just promotional business articles about deals and things like that. I've never read cutting edge journalism on Forbes, uh, but I guess they're going to try and make it immutable uh, and they think that storage doesn't exist. So that's going to be really fun. Uh, yeah. So apparently civil token sale ends tomorrow. If you want to, uh, cause I, my favorite tweet probably about Ethereum ever is someone who said that they bought ether just so that they can support independent comedy. So if you would like to support independent comedy, um, maybe go through the 44 or so steps to get the civil tokens, which includes KYCing yourself with a passport and a driver's license. And you also have to take a quiz to, to you know say that you're not going to speculate but of course that doesn't prove anything you can be a speculator if you want to but yeah have fun kycing yourself to get a token that may you may not even get after tomorrow who knows um yeah and support uh journalism somehow because there won't be a secondary market according to civil or they won't support it but i don't i don't know how this is going to work so if you want to support independent comedy, um, I guess, you know, throw your money away and do that. We heard you like blockchain. So we made a blockchain uh, for your blockchain so you can blockchain while you blockchain. Oh, boy. blockchain. 
Well, I think you have a consensus among the consensus crew that that's what they like. I mean, uh, you know, I just went to a uh, CU uh, blockchain summit and it was highly representative of consensus. And um, there was actually a getting into blockchains panel. And uh, a lot of the discussion was uh, so based around Ethereum that it was kind of, I don't know, to me, it gets kind of aggravating because I think about this audience's students and i'm thinking about students have student loans and they have futures ahead of them it'd be nice to put them in firm footing as far as a good place to work in this space but a lot of it is just yeah like um i don't want to say y'all you know like uh, too much bad stuff about consensus because it is like a group of people that i've kind of come to know at least a couple guys that work with them and you know they're nice guys but it is a thing where it's like if you come together with a project that is a self-governing system within the Ethereum blockchain, they'll fund it. That's the way it seems. And I mean, like we've seen it with uh, a few different, you know, things, projects that they're working. And it's just like this idea of if you can come up with this idea of a self-governing system with the Ethereum blockchain, it will be funded. And uh, that's something that is like... Uh, yeah, it's kind of like just extreme experimentation through all these different developers, but it is kind of also like, I mean, I brought up the question to some of these panelists about, you know, uh, do you recommend that some of these students actually uh, participate in some of this independent blockchain, you know, in the way that they move forward, or should they work with some of these scaling solutions and some of these things that we've actually seen to work in a tenable fashion for you know, independent banking in the way that's so revolutionary. It seems like that would be a great place to point people, but they want to point people to Solidity and they want to point people towards Ethereum and, you know, they've got their bags and everything. It's kind of really, like I said, a long time ago on this, it's like a battleground here. I mean, like a long time ago, uh, Denver had a big Bitcoin meetup that became Rocky Mountain Blockchain, which became ETH Denver. And uh, over time, it's sort of become this big developer community where consensus and shapeshift and some of these guys are big names around here. And, uh, you know, I'm constantly talking to these guys and sort of, uh, working with them in the background as far as just going to different meetings and conferences or this summit or whatever. I see these guys regularly and I know that, uh, consensus, they like this idea of some sort of, yeah, just a, a self-governing system. And, uh, you know, that's why we see a lot of these projects just go off the air, even without really like a firm footing on what the technology is underneath it. It's just like, well, it's this system that's supposed to be self-governed. But when we're talking about journalism and censorship and the way that that all works, it's very important to have these uh, trusted third parties like as little as possible. And um, yeah, so it's a... Uh, as far as just the consensus thing, I could see that they're just, uh, they want to fund any Ethereum project they can that's self-governing. And I mean, like, I don't know how much, uh, you know, insider quote unquote information that is. I mean, it seems like that's just the, yeah, the opera, you know, out, what is that? The opera Mundo or whatever. <laughs> that's what they do. They fund Ethereum projects. Yeah, and someone someone comment. I think it was Ragnar. He replied to my thread, and he said that consensus is like the Ringling Brothers of the blockchain space. And I was like, I would be super impressed if consensus even lasted lasted fifteen years, let alone one hundred and fifty, like Ringling did. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, man. I really, 
I mean, like, there's uh, some Bitcoiners out here, but yeah, I don't know. They, it's they got a pretty big community out here, and it's just like I, I really hope that we could see some of this. Uh, yeah, some of the Bitcoiners from around the globe moving over here to the front range and trying to help me convince some of these people that you know of what. But you know, I try not to get too into their face about it because, like I said, they're, I'm dealing with them face to face. I'm not trying to say like what they're doing is absolutely fruitless, but it is something where whenever I'm talking about students and you know a futurist, like I think there's definitely some directions we could point people where they could have a solid foundation and you know, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and the way that those things are going to move forward and not so much just all this speculative stuff. Yeah. Um, the only other story, I mean, it's not really a story. It's mostly a reminder that I had today, which is that it's the seven year anniversary of the, uh, what is, what is now considered collateral murder of um, Abdul Rahman, which was the 16 year old, uh, American citizen who was actually born in Denver, coincidentally, uh, and he was extrajudicially killed uh, via a drone strike um, during the Obama administration. I think it was two. Th it would be 2011. So yeah, I just wanted to say that because um, I mean, his sister was also killed early last year. Uh, his eight-year-old half-sister, she was shot actually in the neck by SEAL Team 6 and left to bleed to death. And that's an absolutely, like, not only is it, you know, a horrible thing to do to a family that has already had three, now three members of their family, uh, like, direct family killed by the U.S. military, but that's a horrible way to die for an eight-year-old girl in general. And I was inspired last month to rewrite, um, probably many of you have seen the poem of Donald Rumsfeld's speech about um, there are known unknowns and all of that. And so I rewrote that poem um, to include some quotes from, there was an article that was really good uh, about what are called non-justiciable people, which are people who basically try to you know, go to trial to either prove themselves innocent or to get themselves off of the U.S.'s kill list, uh, which basically says we can kill you at any time and you you don't even get a trial. And they've tried to get themselves off that list and they've been told that the kill list is outside the realm of justice. It can't even be considered by a court because it's not it's not considered a matter of justice which should be absolutely terrifying to everyone because it means that you know your citizenship basically means nothing it gives you no real rights if your government can just kill you at any time and there are no consequences for that that you can't even you know rectify the reasons for why you were put on the, that list in the first place um so i included in the video description that i just rewrote that poem to include a bunch of other statements because I think that initial poem that was uh, redone of Donald Rumsfeld's statement is like really illustrative of this whole war on terror, which I think should actually have been called, if it was even legitimate in the first place, it should have been called the war on terrorism. But the fact that they chose war on terror says a lot because 
you can't have a war against terror. That's an emotion felt by people who are in conditions of war. And so you're basically waging a never ending war. So I just wanted to say that as a reminder, because it is the anniversary of a 16 year old being killed. And I think like we need to be reminded of that more often because there are so many people, some of which you may even know who might end up on this list often through no fault of their own, just because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that should be scary. And we should get rid of any system that feels like it has the power to turn anyone into a non-person who can't even have the benefit of you know, trying to clear their name and protecting their family. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's a good reminder and a big uh, red flag for anyone that, uh, you know, if you're a U.S. citizen sitting in your uh, home in, you know, uh, wherever, middle of the country, Ohio, and you think that's just not me, um, you should think about it differently. I mean, uh, you know, it's not you now, but who's to say how things will change? I mean, uh, that happened, uh, the Alawaki thing happened, um, not too long ago. Uh, you know, this was like, uh, this, yeah, I don't, it's like, uh, it's kind of really emotional for me because it's one of those things where it's like the main reason I'm in Bitcoin that I didn't really subconsciously figure out until a lot later where, you know, I was a first responder to Katrina. I was there whenever, uh, you know, I was there at the Superdome for uh, four or five days. And then after that, uh, Blackwater came flying in and, uh, you know, I'd served in Afghanistan. I know, I know about rules of engagement in theater and war. And, um, and I know that uh, they're pretty strict. And uh, whenever Blackwater, which was a hired mercenary group, uh, came in and they took command of my National Guard unit there at the Superdome. And uh, the first order of business was to go to the Federal Reserve building that had been flooded and to shoot first and ask questions later. And uh, that was an order I refused to take. Me and about eight other people backed out of that order. And uh, but in the body count, I could see, you know, you could see people that had been shot and people that had drowned five days ago. And that was in New Orleans. That wasn't widely reported. And I don't know how much I could really say about it other than, you know, you shouldn't think about this situation as something so far away from home. If there's something going on where this power wants to take control of the situation in your town, they're not going to be thinking about your rights or your individual sovereignty. They're going to complete the goal and it's going to be bloody. So, um, you know, it's a good red flag and a reminder to all these U.S. citizens out there that think that this whole war and landscape of death and murder and all these terrible things just can't touch them. Be aware, you know, it's there. It's right. You're right under the wing of it. So if there's something that goes wrong, you know, don't be surprised if the foot lands on you. All right, so Rick, you want to take us into the next one? Oh, yeah, man. Let me just shake that off for a second. Woof. All right, guys. What has been going on with Bitfinex? Because a long time ago, they shut off U.S. customers, and it's kind of been out of my perspective. So what's going on there? Since uh, 
October 11th, Bitfinex has halted all fiat deposits. And uh, of course, that's caused a lot of people to panic and start discussing all the possibilities of Bitfinex's solvency. I dove down a couple of Bitfinex rabbit holes to research this story, yeah, to bring myself back up to speed as, you know, like I'm saying, I don't know what's going over the, on over there since I haven't really been using this exchange and it's kind of been out of my field of view. But it's hard to break into a story like this and try to pin down a reason or answer because it's all so much hearsay piled on top of research and some propaganda to boot. I'll uh, preface this all by saying banks and big exchanges are pretty shady organizations. And that's just in their nature. It's a uh, it's a really it's kind of a necessity to survive the dog eat dog world of banking. So, um, you know, that's probably the main takeaway is like it's going to be hard to really pin this down. But here's what we know about Bitfinex and the uh, Puerto Rican uh, IFE Noble Bank. And uh, yeah, back in February, Bitmex Research did an in-depth study of Tether and found that there were large amounts of cash inflows headed to Puerto Rico Puerto Rico's international financial entities, and uh, that's the IFE. And there were only two institutions in that category, one of which was owned by Peter Schiff, the, the gold bug. So uh, it's hard to imagine that uh, they would be working with them. And the other was owned by someone with ties to the company Tether and also had a vested interest in crypto, and that was Noble Bank. And um, through the uh, inflows of cash, it was kind of just speculated that, yeah, this is the uh, bank that Tether and uh, Bitfinex are using. So uh, earlier this month, we started to see reports of Noble Bank possibly going up for sale after, uh, quote, losing major customers, Bitfinex and Tether. And along with the pain of the uh, sideways or downward action of crypto lately, uh, it's been uh, just a little too much for them to bear. So they're trying to sell their IFE license. And a little before this story broke and more after, Customers of Bitfinex were posting the time it took to withdraw funds and speculating on this question of solvency. Now, I'll say here, it's hard to imagine that this there is a time when big exchanges don't have a bunch of support tickets they're trying to manage. So this didn't seem that out of the ordinary, but there seemed to be enough going on to where, uh, you know, a guy like Nomad, who uh, I respect on Twitter, you know, he, he brought some of these issues together and built out a uh, thread on um, you know what Bitfinex is facing with their banking and customer service issues. And uh, Nomad was bringing up some points of discussion he dug out of the Bitfinex subreddit on the topic of whether Bit Bitfinex was only temporarily stalled or come to a complete halt when it came to the subject of fiat withdrawals. And uh, one of the first tweets in the thread brings up a customer who had over 123,000 in, uh, in US dollars. He withdrawed back in late August that hadn't been credited to his bank. It took a little over a month before he was credited on October 8th, which uh, that's right before the October 11th uh, fiat deposit pause. Uh, but other users confirmed test deposits and withdrawals up to the date of October 10th. And uh, just uh, before this whole news break, Nomad did have some good points for uh, Bitfinex and to try and stem this uh, panic between their customers. You know, just uh, better, one, better communication to your customers to inform your customers you're switching banking partners. It's kind of uh, one of these things where, you know, it's like banking and their partners. You don't want to talk about that stuff. But, uh, you know, if you, if you know it's going to cause a big headache for your customers, you might want to announce something like that. And uh, 
give a legitimate turnaround date for support tickets. Like uh, if you know that tickets are going to take more than two weeks, don't just say it's going to take two weeks or 10 days. Like uh, be realistic about it. Like it might take up to a month or two months, maybe. And uh, having a testation of funds, which, uh, you know, not just saying that you're solvent, um, you know, you're trying to please your customers, not bit for next. So, I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, an attestation of funds is going to necessarily always be uh, taken with like, oh, that's just another BS report. Your customers might appreciate that. And uh, some level of credit to customers who've been impacted through all this. But uh, now soon after he made this thread, the news broke that all Bitfinex fiat deposits have been paused and the situation should normalize within a week. And this news broke from the block crypto who also reported last week that Bitfinex had a private bank account with HSBC that is now closed. This block, the block, the block crypto speculates this is why Bitfinex is no longer accepting fiat deposits. Now all other services on the Bitfinex platform are operating as normal and it takes a lot of Looking through the trees to see the forest on a story like this one, I believe Bitfinex is doing everything they can to remain one of the top exchanges in the space. And I think they should try and improve on the points that Nomad listed, but we'll see if they fill up to improving customer service. Right now, it feels like they are kind of in a state of flux, but I'd like to remind everyone that they still have this uh, Dutch banking relationship with ING. And also, I'd like to just give a Quick shout out to Larry Cermak or at Lawmaster on Twitter for breaking the story. And uh, after digging through his feed last night, I don't think he's uh, secretly Bitfinexed. I think he's just got some healthy speculation about everything. And in response to all his heavy criticism about solvency, uh, Gavis Bitfinex on Reddit had this to say, quote, Thanks for reaching out. Fiat deposits have been suspended for a week, and it is, of course, a great opportunity for FUD spreaders to extend the panic and make up more and more news. I am waiting for more information myself, as it hasn't reached the social media team yet. And uh, so far, that's, I mean, like Bitfinex has, uh, you know, officially paused these deposits, and uh, they've made an official statement on it now. And, um, you know, so uh, that's what's going on with Bitfinex. What do you guys think about that? You think this is just another round of uh, everybody panicking because things are moving in a direction they're not sure of? Or you think there's some real issues there with Tether? I mean, what do you think? Honestly, I just think this is this simple. I mean, when we first covered Noble Bank putting them up for sale, one of the key pieces of information was that their custodian bank in New York City had severed their relationship with them. And so I think this is as simple as Noble Bank is getting fucked with because they were used by Tether. And Tether and Finex are just having to shuffle funds around and find new banks again. I mean, like, this is literally the same song and dance that's been going on for like two, three years now. Like, every time these companies, settle themselves with a new banking relationship things work fine for a while and then the banking system starts fucking with them there's more fucking fud and, and it's like honestly like what other exchanges out there have this much shit thrown at them or these kinds of claims about insolvency like you see binance get hit with this how about coinbase after we found out they literally had millions of dollars in scattered dust outputs that they couldn't spend like where it, it, it was like a, a week or two and then fees went down and people oh who cares it's it's like it is so transparently just 
a large number of players trying to fuck with these businesses. And that's not to say that like Finex does absolutely everything by the book. You can trust them no matter what. Like you should always be skeptical of a third party. But like there is clearly a fucking agenda here and a large amount of people coordinating and pushing it. I mean, like this to me is just it looks as blatantly simple as one of their banks got fucked with yet again. They're having to move their funds to new banks and it's causing issues. I mean, it's it's the same song and dance. Yeah, and I also find it interesting whenever they like instead of just saying you can't do withdrawals or deposits, they say you can't do withdrawals or you can't do deposits. They don't just flat out, you know, block payments getting through, which tells me that their motivation is not to actually stop Bitfinex or Tether from operating. It's more to influence how they operate so that the Bitcoin price gets influenced in a way that I don't know, acts in their favor. Because I assume that if you stop deposits, that means it's harder for people to buy Bitcoin, but they can still get out in fiat, which means they're more likely to sell, I assume. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Yeah, so I always find it interesting when they choose one or the other, they don't just block it altogether. Like, honestly, I just think like they're that the deposits are shut down because they don't want to be bringing in more money when there's going to be issues with that. And I mean, they might not even have places right now that they can take wires in like currently, but I mean, I, I think it's pretty telling that they've shut down deposits only and withdrawals are still going through at least last I heard just with a lot of delays, which again is in my opinion, indicative of bank wires being fucked with and, and pr pretty much the same shit, like the, the banking system fucking with them. Yeah, I could agree. It definitely feels like they're just kind of, uh, you know, just redoing the same play that's happened before where, uh, what was that in Taiwan, where uh, they lost their relationship there and had to refund another relationship. And eventually they found their way to Puerto Rico and ING and, and, uh, you know, yeah, it'll be another move. And I think that they'll, uh, you know, like Janine's saying, I think it will kind of, you know, it'll create less buy pressure because people can't deposit their uh, their fiat. But, um, you know, there's other ways to do it. I don't think it would affect it that much. It does seem like it is like just a general technical problem they're trying to work around. And, uh, you know, they've done it in the past and uh, they've done a lot to uh, try and keep their customers happy like uh, you know the hack and the bfx token and the way that that was all kind of handled and just uh i don't think that they're just trying to cut tail and run like some people say and you know it it, it very well could be a very coordinated effort like because uh you know these banks don't play nice and uh yeah i think that they'll you know get these things shored back up to where things are going smoothly but for right now it does seem like there's just a a large amount of FUD going around and just general, I mean, like some of the news just doesn't seem like, uh, you know, people are trying to get the price up. Seems like they're trying, they're all right with, uh, you know, just talking, you know, some FUD. So we'll see how it goes. It's probably just the cycles and uh, I'm sure they'll make their way out of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, last two cents I have on this is look at Bitfinex. He only seems to shit on things that the U.S. government isn't happy with. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. 
But you guys got any more on this one? No, I'm good. All right. Well, I guess in other news, um, a Buddha exchange out of Chile, which is also operating in um, Colombia, Argentina, and Peru, has recently integrated lightning support. And honestly, I've seen this uh, kind of thrown all over the place and people showing this, but I'm honestly, I, I don't see this as positively as a lot of people do. And the reason is just how this entire thing is set up. I mean, this this is pretty much, this isn't like set up in a way where open a lightning channel with us and you can keep your funds in your control when you're not trading. This is effectively them opening lightning channels with businesses. Um, for instance, right now they have a channel with bit refill um, for vouchers for like prepaid phone cars, steam, bit launch to pay for digital hosting services, a SMS service to pay for text messages and lightning, coin mall, and then um, Jolt Fund, another thing to buy video games over Lightning Network. And pretty much um, use your account um, to make payments through them over Lightning Network. So you, you effectively still have all of your funds and you can just get the Lightning invoice and go through their exchange site or their app, plug in the invoice, and they'll pay it for you and deduct your account. And... I don't really like lightning used in, in this manner. I mean, to, to be fair on the other side, this really would make receiving lightning payments for your average person a lot simpler because they're going to have high liquidity channels that likely have funds on the other side so they can receive payments over lightning and debit it to your account. Although I don't see anything set up to actually do that now. But really, this is the, 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 this is like completely, in my opinion, just undermining the whole point of Lightning Network. Like the, the ability to actually scale out transactions in a peer-to-peer -peer way, like it, it, you, you, like you're, you're just completely throwing all of those benefits aside when you just put your money in your exchange account and just have them make Lightning payments for you. And I mean, it, it's also very degrading in terms of the privacy of transacting. Like if I have my own Lightning wallet and I go to make a payment, there, there's nobody out there who's aware of that payment except me and the person who's being paid. All of the nodes through the middle, all, all they know is we're shuffling money down this channel. They, they don't know I'm making the payment. They don't know who's getting paid. And it's... Like it's, it's like, it's unavoidable that some businesses are going to do things like this and some people may choose to use it, but it, it just seems silly to me. Like it's just as silly as using Coinbase to transact with things instead of actually holding the keys yourself. And like, it's like, yeah, it's, it's good to see businesses integrating the technology period and, and getting familiar with it so that they can build out and deploy new things with it but 
I, I really think that a lot of the, the reaction to this is just way overselling it. I mean, th this is effectively just using Coinbase to make payments, except Coinbase is using Lightning Network on the back end. Like you as the end user aren't really getting most of the benefits. Like the, the only benefit you're actually getting as a user is the cheaper fee. Like you're not getting the control of your funds. You're not getting the privacy benefits. And I, I would really, really like to see Lightning used in, in this part of the world in an actual peer-to-peer -peer way and not large amounts of people flocking to a business like this and pretty much just having them use Lightning for them while still using a custodial account. I mean, it, it completely undermines the whole purpose of it as far as the, the end user is concerned. Yeah, I'd be interested to, I mean, like, I haven't really heard of this uh, exchange, but I'd be interested to, you know, see more, dig into more about it. Because, uh, yeah, it's certainly not something that the way Lightning was sort of meant to build out to be. But, uh, yeah, I could see definitely sort of the business model where people try to you know, sort of capture like, oh, well, we're going to do the Lightning thing and we're going to do it for you and make it easier instead of like waiting for the UI and UX to catch up with uh you know, the market. And, um, you know, it's kind of maybe just like similarly to the slowing process we see of Bitcoin development with uh, people running towards other, you know, uh, private blockchains and all that. So I could see that, you know, yes, in China, you know, I mean, like uh, they need this peer to peer stuff because, uh, you know, it's kind of tough out there. So like, uh, I mean, I'm interested to see some exchanges do Lightning the right way. Like, you know, I know that there's definitely some added benefits where they could use something like Lightning. So uh, it'd be good to see some uh, exchanges go ahead and turn that on. And I'm also, you know, pretty jazzed about, yeah, li Lightning, Liquid, you know, like these things can definitely benefit exchanges. But uh, we'll see, you know, if they all do it uh, a little this or a little that and maybe try to make some services too or how exactly it goes, you know, this whole thing's just now being built out. But uh, yeah, I can see some people trying to take advantage of that business model. Yeah, it's just, I mean, yeah, it's it's good to see like people can use it now. Like, but it, I, I just, I don't want to see things like this built out and then just stagnate and people actually not take full advantage of what Lightning can actually offer. But I mean, you know, at the end of the day, people can use it how they want. It's just, I, I don't see this as like the great news everybody's trying to make it out to be. Like it's neat, but. Right. I saw a really neat uh, bike for rent with the Lightning payment. That was pretty cool. Eh, those rented bikes are stupid. Just buy a bike. They're everywhere. <laughs> rent a bike, rent a scooters. I swear I've seen people riding around on these rent a one wheeler or something. It's, it's wild. Mm -hmm. All right. Janine, you got anything to pitch in on this? Putting you on the spot. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree in general that it's like nice to see that. The exchanges are looking at using Lightning, but from an architectural standpoint, it doesn't make that much sense unless they're accepting Lightning payments into like an account uh, on their exchange that's not KYC'd or you know super identifiable in any way, like it's an anonymous account. 
Um, but even then, I mean, that's still not as great as just using lightning as it was intended, which is for, you know, people, as many people as possible to run their own node when they can, um, an exchange setting one up with other exchanges. Um, I mean, yeah, they're, I mean, they're the only benefit in that really is that obviously the, they're sending, you know, payments to other exchanges and they get some benefit, I guess, with the onion routing if they're actually routing, but if they have a direct channel with other exchanges, that's obviously that's not, you don't get that privacy benefit unless you're routing. So yeah, from an architectural standpoint, it doesn't make much sense. Lightning. Mm -hmm. All right, though, set up move along so two things kind of going on in coinbase land that i think kind of weave together in a very relevant way so um coinbase a while back um launched a institutional index fund and pretty much the the entire rationale behind it was to try and create like the the smp index of the crypto world with a minimum of $250,000 up to $20 million um, in terms of investment. And they would pretty much just weight what their customers invested in terms of the best performing cryptocurrencies in the space. And they pretty much just shut it down um, right after they've launched their retail basket of the, the cryptos that they sell with a minimum of like $25. And pretty much the reasoning behind this was there is like almost no interest. Like the, they had, they've had this for, I, I don't want to say a whole year, but somewhere around the, the time frame of a year. And they've been able to really attract almost no, you know, capital into this. And it's, it's pretty clear looking at a lot of what's going on in, in the investment space. You know, a lot of wealthy individuals are just moving straight into Bitcoin or other large cryptos and allocating their own funds or moving into very mature funds like those set up by people like Andreessen Horowitz or people who actually have experience in running something like a hedge fund or, or a, a kind of indexed basket. And shutting this down it seems like they've had like a, a lot of drop-off in traffic since last december i mean looking i think um i i forget his name but um the the dire publication that had that that really horrible um lightning network uh analysis in terms of liquidity was looking at bank transfers and credit card charges to coinbase since then and it's, or I'm sorry, not Dyer, um, it's his Scroop tribe, but um, they've seen like an 80% drop in activity in, in Coinbase transfers um, of fiat into the business. And a lot of these institutional projects, such as the this index fund, haven't really been attracting any money or attention. And Coinbase is kind of trying to pivot back to that retail market when they've been setting up all of these things and trying to create products for, you know, the institutional players. And at the same time, there's been a huge drop off in their retail customer activity. And they're starting to get squeezed with competition 
from other exchanges, from businesses such as Square Cash, and they've really just squandered a lot of their trust and reputation in terms of, you know, people who've been in this space for a while, like their their main customer base. And, you know, obviously looking at a lot of the businesses stepping into the space now, like it's, I don't really think it looks too good for Coinbase in terms of actually being able to keep a, a fighting chance at attracting a lot of this institutional money. And to like kind of slide into the, the next two stories and kind of tie all this together, um, Adam White uh, recently, I think a week or two ago, left Coinbase. And he was actually the, the person in charge of their institutional products. Like he was the one who helped build out this crypto index and start trying to build out infrastructure and services for large institutional players. And we see like in the recent hiring frenzy, like Coinbase has really been on a tear, pretty much hiring people from the, the financial legacy system. I mean, they've, they brought on Chris Dodds from Charles Schwab, um, Apudo as a Dario um, from JP Morgan. And like, they just keep pulling legacy people into this, this company and trying to figure out how to really build out products and structure things to appeal to institutional investors. Well, just a few days ago, it came out the reason Adam White left Coinbase is he's taking a job at Bact, the um, the deliverable futures um, company being started by Intercontinental Exchange, which is planning on building out a whole ecosystem centered around crypto from just physically deliverable futures to actually trying to set up custodial solutions to deal with large investments and even like in the long term from what they've been saying, trying to tie all of this together and bridge this in a way where they can also help facilitate retail payments at a, at a very large scale and in an environment where large businesses can kind of hedge and, and deal with unloading this without price slippage, which is really a big part of why it wouldn't make sense for businesses to accept crypto right now. Like you're, you're dealing with the huge volatility in the price. And if you can't hedge against that, if you're not instantaneously unloading that, you, you're dealing with a huge risk of, of value loss in, in exchange for the, the goods you just sold. And just like this whole dynamic right now is like Coinbase has spent a lot of effort trying to really move into the Wall Street world and attract money and, and customers from these big institutional players, even to the point of like hiring large amounts of people from this world. But we can see like the exact opposite happening where these institutional players are starting to build out services and look at how to directly integrate into this ecosystem themselves. And like really just looking at this, Coinbase has burned a good amount of goodwill with their retail customers in trying to make this pivot. And, you know, just aside from backed, I mean, NASDAQ is looking at integrating in this space. You have the CME, the CBOE with their own futures products. The, the, the Swiss Stock Exchange was recently announced as a, a federation member of the liquid side chain. Like there, there are a few institutional players looking to start their own exchanges and really at the end of the day i think it's going to be a lot easier 
for those institutional players to get people who understand how to handle the crypto side of things and plug that into the legacy system than it is going to be for businesses like Coinbase to try and figure out how to navigate the, the world of Wall Street and actually uh, attract customers or build the level of trust that th those customers would require before actually dealing with them as a, a custodian or, or a brokerage. And like, you know, I, I've been saying this for quite a long time. Like this is an inevitable thing in this space where like, yeah, a lot of crypto businesses and exchanges understand how to handle the crypto side of things, but it's, it's one clusterfuck after another clusterfuck trying to figure out how to manage an exchange in a financial business. And we're going to see a lot of these businesses pushed out and just point blank out competed by legacy players who move into the space and already know how to handle that whole financial and infrastructure side of things. They just need to get the right crypto people to handle security and, you know, management of that side of things. And like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's definitely not anywhere near as bad as Bitmain and what's going on with them. But like, if this kind of trend continues, like I don't see Coinbase maintaining this huge dominant position that they have. I mean, it's like, there's going to be an insane amount of competition in terms of retail on ramps for normal people to just get in and acquire cryptocurrency. And it doesn't really look like they're doing so well in trying to fight for a slice of that institutional market. Yeah, man, looking at the story, it kind of does look like they're bleeding at both ends there. Because like what it was like a $250,000 to be an accredited investor for that index fund. And now they've created this new fund where it's like $25 to be an accredited investor. And to me, it's like if you're spending $25 on crypto, you're basically, you're not going to want to, I mean, most people I think would look at it as like, you know, you're going to pick a horse in this race or something, not just like, I'm going to bet on the whole lot. Um, but I don't know, that's just my own thought process, but certainly, you know, they did really take a punch at the retail side of all this with, uh, you know, this terrible history of these, uh, transactions just sort of clogging up the network at the end of last year. And, uh, you know, just the way that they, we're so back and forth with 2X and, uh, you know, very much in the whole Bcash side of moving around a bunch of volume to try and make a price action behave the way they want. And, uh, you know, one of the major discussion points of that uh, Senate hearing was about, you know, pump and dumps and things like that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely the Cash App and Robinhood that have kind of just popped up in their space here in uh in the United States, as far as being like someplace to get Bitcoin and trade Bitcoin. And, um, you know, yeah, the institution side, we got the CME and CBOE of last year, but yeah, this back product and, you know, uh, NASDAQ and six and all these different, uh, institutional investors coming on with their own product. And, uh, you know, they got BitGo coming up with the custody there in South Dakota. It's like, uh, you know, they're just getting out maneuvered They They made the wrong decision. They bet on the wrong horse, I think. And, um, you know, maybe they can try and rebound from all this and try and stem the flow of all this. But uh, I mean, like this is a uh, Bitcoin, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they lose their position. And then I'm always trying to fight to regain it. I mean, uh, you know, it's hard to get those coins back.
I mean, it's just like, it's that attitude of like, we are too big to fail. We have all of this money and capital behind us, but like, that doesn't matter shit if you continue to fuck up, you know, actually giving your customers what they want. And like, I can't think of a better example than Coinbase in terms of pissing your customers off on it almost like never ceasing basis. Yeah, I mean, like they just they'll just join the Bitmain, uh, you know, history books as far as just another company to look at uh, the way they behaved with their customers. Mm -hmm. All right, come on, Jenny, you have nothing to shit talk Coinbase for. <laughs> mm. Um, I mean. Not anything that's specific to the story. No. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I think they're generally incompetent and they're a reason that a bunch of people dropped Bitcoin and they were behind a lot of the complaints for fees and the congestion and stuff last year, but I don't have anything specific right now. Mean people. Already. They're just confused. They're not mean. Move along. I wanted to punch Coinbase more. All right. So, updates out of India. Although, to my irritation, they do not include a black and white cut and dry answer as to how the Supreme Court um, has actually ruled as far as the RBI circular. So, uh this this kind of uh event going on is probably the most pissed off i have ever been at the internet in terms of not getting information across the world when i want it but kind of tangentially related though so uno coin um one of the bigger exchanges in india um had um some rumors start circulating around on whatsapp and twitter uh, a few days ago, um, showing a picture of a Uno coin branded ATM. And after about one day, um, they made an official announcement that they are going to be launching an ATM network, although they st are still working on the placements and haven't really put together a lot of details for the public. But they're, they're pretty much uh, going to be trying to launch ATMs all across the country in malls. And this is pretty much their way of trying to bypass what, what's going on with the ban uh, of interacting with banks and other financial services in India. So I know a lot of other uh, exchanges have pretty much tried to establish their own peer-to-peer -peer services like uh, local bitcoins or move to crypto to crypto only trading and um Zebpay pretty much shut down because of how bad this ban was hurting their bottom line but unocoin is going to try and launch this atm network that will only accept cash and not deal with any debit or credit cards and pretty much build it out not not as a traditional atm where you can just show up and just put the money in and get your crypto, but kind of tie it to your Unocoin account and use this as a way to kind of bypass what's going on with the ban and dealing with banks or financial services. 
So they'll still require you to actually use your account to make any sales or, or buys, but everything is going to be dealing with cash going in and out of these machines. So th this kind of allows them to still comply with know your customer regulations, anti-money laundering regulations, but in, in setting these up to deal with cash, it allows them to still deal with fiat and kind of get around the fact that banks aren't actually dealing with them. And I, you know, again, like there's still no like news I've seen, at least in the West or any English uh, publications that say definitively the court has upheld the ban. But given the fact that UnoCoin is, is really going this far in terms of trying to actually maintain a link with fiat in their markets, like I can't imagine that this circular is going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. And honestly, like, I, I'm wondering how long it's going to be before, like, the legal system or the, the central banks start going after these ATMs and start trying to find loopholes or reasons why this is illegal. Because this is... Like it's not them dealing with a financial institution, but obviously the intent of that that circular was to cut them off from dealing with fiat. And the the fact that they've found a way around that, at least legally speaking, like I don't think that the the RBI is just going to sit down and, and do nothing about this. Shoot, yeah, man. I'm sorry. I was just trying to flip through the tabs. I'm always flipping the wrong tab. But yeah, like uh, it really is kind of like we need to reach out to our audience. You know, somebody in India, you know, somebody that's like on the ground there looking at the situation. It'd be good to get like an update because uh, just doesn't seem to be much chatter about the subject. And it's certainly, uh, you know, I could see Unicoin making a move like this because it's just like, where, what are you going to do with your business? And this is what we talk about whenever it's like if you uh, if your country's regulations are not really going to be favorable for crypto, it's just going to stifle the innovation to the point to where, you know, these guys are just limited to a uh, Bitcoin ATM or, uh, you know, Bitcoin and some altcoin ATM and uh, and local Bitcoins. And, um, you know, we've seen this sort of transactions taking place in China where there's already sort of this ban in place. And, uh, you know, China and uh, India are basically in a similar region and uh you know it could kind of like you were saying um you know they're heavy in their gold and uh they don't really uh they've already kind of started this whole currency war thing and uh i hope they don't take it that far to where they actually start trying to bust up these atms i mean um like you're saying i mean they're compliant with this so uh you know let let's let this go uh and uh yeah anybody out there that knows somebody from india that knows a little bit more details on this circular it would be a It'd be good to just hear like a little bit of an update because right now it feels like uh, their deadline came and went as far as what they were going to make a statement on and we never heard back. So, uh, yeah, please, if you're out there, you know what's going on. Let us know in the comments below or on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I mean, other news um, in India. The government actually set up a panel in, in last December. Um under the finance ministry to kind of look at uh, blockchain technology in general, as well as the downsides and upsides of a government-backed cryptocurrency. 
And somebody who's been dealing with this panel uh, made a comment recently that the, the panel is pretty much considering advising that India launch its own cryptocurrency. And like it's honestly like overall, I would say just as an outsider looking in that the situation is not looking very good for Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in India. And like if this if this actually happens and they follow through with this, I mean, even this quoted person is kind of saying that this is pointless, like that a blockchain is supposed to be a decentralized ledger. And if you have the government in control of it, then what's the point of it? And he's also saying that this panel is also discussing an amendment to the Currency Act in India to make possession of any cryptocurrency not approved by the government illegal and a punishable offense. So if, if like what this person is saying is accurate and this is actually what this panel is thinking and going to recommend to the government, like regardless of, you know, a company like Unocoin trying to build out a way to get around this bank ban, like it seems like the government is not doing this in a vacuum. Like they're they're actually considering launching their own cryptocurrency, and if they do so, literally amending the laws in the country so that possessing any other cryptocurrency like would be illegal, like just to possess it, and like that that would just destroy every single crypto business in, in the entire country overnight, like mining and any kind of merchant services using it, all of the exchanges, even peer to peer like systems it would like all of it would just implode i mean i have a way to shit on coinbase i just thought of something coinbase oh. does not <laughs> coinbase uh does not serve any countries in i think let me check i think it serves singapore and australia but those are the only two countries that it serves in the entire pacific region uh, it does not serve India. It does not serve Afghanistan, which is where I've talked about before, where Code to Inspire is um, supposedly helping girls learn to code and they get compensated with cryptocurrency because they can't, you know, it's hard for them to own any other kind of property. They can't have bank accounts or anything like that. Uh, so Coinbase doesn't serve any of these countries. And I don't know how much of that is because the Indian government was not receptive to them or because they just didn't even try. I would put more on them just not even trying because the countries that they've chosen to go into so far are mostly in North America and Europe, which is pretty much what a lot of the US exchange, US-based exchanges do is they mostly focus on the US and Europe. Um, they don't try to go anywhere else. So once again, giant company with a lot of money not helping this at all by not advocating or spending any money to advocate for cryptocurrency services in these countries. Definitely so. I mean, like, uh, you know, it's hard to, like, we're reaching out to people on the ground to try and get all the information where you got a big company like that with the resources. You wish they would be uh, doing some of this, you know, to try and help their ecosystem, but they don't see the uh, unbanked or people that are having trouble with banking as being part of their ecosystem, I suppose. But uh, yeah, this whole India ban or the possibility of an India government crypto, 
I mean, like, I'm glad to see that there is at least some pushback there as far as people understanding that this goes against the grain of what this is trying to solve. And it's not really create, it's just not really creating any sort of efficiency. And, uh, you know, it just like, yeah, it wouldn't be just so, you know, the main thing, like, yeah, it would wreck the, uh, the, the companies over there trying to do stuff. But, you know, just think about it, like even one step lower than that, it's going to wreck their country, man. I mean, people aren't going to be prepared for some sort of economic downturn or they're not going to be up to speed when it comes to trying to move forward with a market, a global market in crypto. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, it's going to leave them behind. That's where it's just like, it's so aggravating to see this kind of back and forth where they don't understand that they're actually stifling the progression of their country. But um, you know, everybody's trying to figure this whole thing out at once and not everybody's on the same level. So we'll see how it goes. Well, I mean, I don't, because <laughs> I mean, we saw with the demonetization, uh, the and the banning of, I think it was the five hundred ruby, ruple, ruple note. I can't even remember what their currency name is right now. Ruby, yeah, ruby. I think that's yeah, it. Ruby. Like um, Zelda. yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's how I remember that. Yeah. So I mean, that happened, and they obviously still kept using them anyway. They just disappeared from the mainstream economy with bank accounts and everything but like banning stuff i i I heard this funny story recently where um the the reason that like when when uh irs scammers and all of that call people um they they're like scammers like that are much more successful in the united states than they are in india because apparently if you call someone in india and say you know you owe the government money. We are coming after you. They'll be like, you know, screw you. I don't, I don't think you're coming after me. Or they'll be like, you know, come get me. Cause they're really, there's so many ways you can disappear in India because of how many people live there and the architecture and infrastructure. Um, so they're not really afraid. Whereas if you call the average American and you say like, you owe the IRS money, like we're coming after you, they will get like, they will shit their pants and they will do whatever you say. It's so easy to scare Americans because they're like, <laughs> they're, they're genuinely, genuinely afraid. A lot of them of their government and they're easily tricked by that stuff. Um, so that was funny anecdote. But yeah, so I don't, I don't actually think that them trying, I mean, ATMs, I mean, obviously that's a big machine. So if they do build out machines and put them anywhere, they're going to have to do it in places that don't get, you know, they don't get a lot of regular people coming through or they won't get noticed by authorities just passing by. They're going to have to be in specific, not easily recognized or seen places, but I don't think I don't think that a ban would actually be that effective because so far what we've seen with bans is that, you know, whatever gets banned just it keeps circulating in the economy. It's just not being noticed as much because obviously people are hiding it. So yeah. I'm not really I'm not really concerned about that. But yeah, I mean, obviously, because Coinbase is such it's, it's such I'm going to use the phrase bag of dicks there. <laughs> Because they 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 keep tweeting about how they're building an open financial system, but nothing about their system whatsoever is open. The only people who can use Coinbase are people can not only have identity documents that are valid and will be recognized, but have the freedom to use services where they dox themselves and there's no repercussions for doing that. Which, I mean, if 
you know, if anyone from India, they can't even use Coinbase because it's not a supported country, but let's say it even was a supported country, you know, the chances of them getting denied just because their identity documents, you know, don't get recognized or their government doesn't like the fact that they're using a cryptocurrency exchange, that's a lot harder. So Coinbase is not building a system that is open to people who actually need this technology or this money. And like their latest tweets from the last few days is literally about them adding something called ZRX. I don't even know what the fuck that is, but they've added another coin that I've never heard of. And that's apparently their biggest news lately. So yeah, building an open financial system for people that already have banking fun, like congratulations, but India's not going to be in that and doesn't sound like they're going to be a supported country. So if you're in India, don't bet on these venture capital funded businesses in the US to come save you. You really have to go the route of building local stuff that takes into account the the risk and threat model that you face, including from your own government. Hey, and not all Americans are completely scared of government, but I think they got a good reason to as far as just like the prison economy over here. It's like, you know, hey, you do something wrong, we'll make money off of you somewhere. But, um, you know, yeah, as far as the band goes, they're all really usually pretty inefficient. And maybe these things will be in like, uh, you know, I mean, India has got a pretty segregated community as far as rich and poor go. And I don't think that many of the rich venture into those poor communities. So I wouldn't be surprised if they actually can enforce that sort of thing. But um, especially with like, you know, just another shout out to Transaction Tina, Samurai and, uh, you know, just uh, getting the Go Tinas out there and, you know, just another way to route around all this sort of nonsense and uh, avoid detection and all that. So, um, you know, yeah, it's going to, you know, these things are going to happen, but the the smart will still be there and they'll still survive it. And, uh, you know, it's just going to stifle the amount of actual innovation in the country and the amount of adoption. There's still going to be transactions moving through those areas. Yeah. I mean, you know, people might be able to access it and deal with it, but, like it's going to completely stifle any kind of company or economic growth based on oh yeah and i mean like people can still use it as a hedge for like their value but like that it's still going to have a concrete damaging effect on the economy in their country in the long term like if if all of this continues growing and becoming more and more important in the like global economy like Oh, yeah, man. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It's just like, uh, you know, there'll still be some people out there doing something. It's just not going to be near as many or any of the customer base. But, um, you know, I think there's going to be at least a few smart guys that are still out there in the weeds uh, working through it. And, you know, it's a good place to test censorship resistance and all that, too. Mm -hmm. All right, let's hop into the next shitty story. Uh so uh mercado bitcoin uh one of the largest exchanges in brazil has been engaged in a lawsuit with uh their bank uh, i think it's pronounced uh Itaú bank and the second highest court in brazil has ruled in favor of the bank um, for arbitrarily shutting down uh, mercado bitcoin's banking services and the, the entire bank's defense is that 
um, pretty much the KYC and AML regulations in Brazil give them the power to close accounts, which at their discretion may be facilitating or participating in illegal activities with zero evidence. So they, they can pretty much just say they think you are doing something illegal and do not require any degree of evidence or proof or previous instance whatsoever and they can unilaterally shut you out of the banking system and so pretty much this leaves their only option as uh, appealing to the supreme court and the only real reason that they could really make an appeal and have any chance of winning is on the basis of the brazilian constitution so they would actually have to find some kind of constitutional argument as to why this is completely unacceptable in terms of just summarily shutting down their banking services. And something that really kind of complicates this is in Brazil, the director of a bank is directly responsible for any kind of illegal activity that their bank facilitates and can actually be suspended from financial markets for up to 10 years for failing to act upon any suspicious financial activity. And so like literally any kind of illegal thing done using an instrument they offer, using the, their services or their bank, the director of the bank is held directly liable for it. And so like really playing armchair lawyer here, like this really doesn't like look too positive. And I mean, if this continues, if this is if this is left as it is here, or if this is appealed to the Supreme Court and they, they rule in the bank's favor again, then this would pretty much just solidify a very similar situation to what's going on in India. Banks could just summarily shut down the accounts of any crypto business and refuse to offer them services, and there would be pretty much nothing that these businesses could do about it. Like it, it would have effectively been upheld by the Supreme Court that they're within their right to, on any baseless suspicion whatsoever, to deny them services. And that would have the exact same kind of effects that we're seeing play out in India right now. Businesses having to shut down, move solely to crypto-to-crypto -to -crypto business models in terms of exchanges, which is much harsher in terms of the competition involved and much less profitable or you know things like hacking around and, and dealing with potentially a solution like uno coin but you know given the general climate in brazil i'm not so sure that it would be very wise or safe for an exchange to try to move into some kind of direction where they're dealing directly with cash I mean, it's, there is a lot of violent crime in Brazil and for these businesses to move in a way where they would have to directly handle and move around with cash. I mean, that's just screaming, like rob me. And so I don't think that kind of, that kind of business pivot would really be as viable as it might be in India if India doesn't wind up following through and actually outright banning and making owning cryptocurrencies illegal.
Yeah, man, it's pretty tough out there to see this kind of legislation where people could just get their accounts just sort of broken down because of some little bit of suspicion. And, uh, you know, if you're a business doing crypto, I guess that, you know, they just uh, see you as a threat. So, I mean, it's like a good excuse to just pin you down. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of just thinking here, like, while we're talking about this, like, I wonder if like, you know, because I've been looking at the local Bitcoin volumes for these stories and I'm, you know, in the same search you know i could see the bisque volume moving up and i just wonder if like maybe these decentralized exchanges could play a real pivotal role in uh keeping these eco ecosystems moving you know to where they do have like uh they have the option to still um you know cash out but through a uh, decentralized order book or a, that was actually still just uh I guess you would still have to obscure your identity and, uh, you know, they still have the option to shut you down if they figure out that you're banking through BISC, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, uh, it's just, um, yeah, it's upsetting to see, but, um, it's hard to say what to do. Brazil's like one of those countries where their politics are pretty crazy and, uh, you know, maybe they just need to start giving politicians some Bitcoin, you know, that's something where, they just increase their position and maybe they'll rewrite some of this stuff to where uh, they can't do this to them. It just, it just seems, it just sucks. I mean, it's like the, these kinds of countries are where Bitcoin could actually do the most good in terms of correcting big issues in the financial system and actually protecting like citizens of these countries. And I mean, it seems to be like these are the places that are coming down the most harshly on Bitcoin. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, that's kind of upsetting. It's, uh, you know, but just like, uh, you know, Venezuela and, uh, and China, I think that, yeah, it's, it's definitely hurting the people that need it. Um, but I think we're going to route around it. I think we'll find a way around it. And um, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's upsetting, but like I'm saying, I mean, you know, politicians move in and move out of there quickly. Maybe somebody will start up a bank there, you know, pitching to crypto, and like uh, maybe it's a, a an opportunity for a politician and a banker to uh, come together to start a business that funds, uh, you know, not funds, but elect promises they won't shut down crypto accounts, and uh, just see how that goes. Mm -hmm. All right, let's hop into the next one though got about 15 minutes left All so right. uh, hot on the heels of yale uh, harvard stanford mit dartmouth and the university of north carolina have all invested a small amount of their endowment fund into cryptocurrency funds <laughs> so that was really quick right and i mean this has kind of got me thinking in really in the long term as far as how endowment funds could actually start interacting with the crypto space. And I mean, like really the whole logic behind a fund like this is, you know, institutions, I mean, like most, most of these major universities could literally just let people attend for free and not that I'm advocating for that. Like, I'm just pointing out that they could because of how much of their revenue really comes from alumni donations and being reinvested in, into their endowment fund and played on the market. Like they, they literally could just let people attend free and with these endowment funds still have the money to operate 
the colleges to pay the the staff, the teachers, and like the the whole reason that these funds exist is when you you amass large amounts of money like this, you you're an idiot if you just leave it sitting in the bank. Like you're pretty much just guaranteeing that its value is going to be slowly chipped away and the purchasing power of it diminished so they take it and they invest it in the markets and they they realize a large amount of gains in doing so and this is a large part of how you know these institutions operate which is a huge part of the logic in why they're getting into crypto funds in the first place right now but in in the long term in times of like or terms of like the next 10 or 20 years you know, the more I've been thinking about this the last day or two, like cryptocurrencies could really, Bitcoin specifically, change how a fund like this is structured. I mean, assume things go well and Bitcoin winds up as a huge international global currency in the next 10 or 20 years that is slowly deflationary with a finite supply. Funds like this have an alternative now. Like they have a place to park the vast majority of their funds that isn't just going to be eaten away by inflation and has some small predictable appreciation based on the growth of the economy. And so now they they can kind of be a little more conservative and still appreciate or realize gains through this. So the, the more I've been thinking about this on a very long time horizon, it has me wondering if funds like this like, could wind up being restructured in terms of the risk they take and really how conservative they can be in terms of managing the wealth of the funds. Like, If you can park the vast majority of a fund like this in Bitcoin and know that it's going to be safe from inflation, know that it's going to have some amount of slow appreciation just sitting there then you can be one a lot more conservative in really how much of the fund is tied up in investments and two can be a little more high risk in terms of investments and the risk reward because you can leave most of the funds somewhere where you know that purchasing power is going to be safe and offset losses in any risky investments elsewhere with that like funds like this could really function in a, in a pretty different way in a bitcoin powered world and yeah it's 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 just interesting to kind of sit and think about how different financial structures like this would operate in a world ran on bitcoin instead of fiat where a big part of the the motive for investing things in the market is because you're guaranteed to lose money if you don't and how something like Bitcoin could really change the incentives of that. Yeah, that's true. I just want to say though, that I don't care how much any of them buy Bitcoin. I'm not attending university. Thank you. Oh yeah, definitely don't go for one of those expensive pieces of paper. That's not going to get you far. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, we did that Yale story and like uh, shortly after that, like just, you know, immediately after really, it was like, yeah, all these other endowments came in and doing the looks on all this. It looks like uh, 
they all kind of uh, look to Yale as their oracle and their signal on where to where to go. And uh, so they did it. And, you know, like we were talking earlier about institutional players coming in the space, I don't think anybody should look at these endowment funds as, uh, you know, just like a regular customer. These are institutions and they are not, uh, you know, very, they're not very quick to just throw their money around. And they, they've been on some pretty sure things. Uh, so, yeah, it'd be, uh, you know, some more institutional players from universities and uh, possibilities. Yeah. I, I haven't really thought that much about them, but I'm sure there's a lot. Well, I mean, like, really think about it. Like, it's not, it's not just universities that function on, on endowment funds. I mean, like, churches do this, hospitals do this, nonprofits do this. I mean, like, this really Ooh. could kind of change the, the financial profile of a lot of different, you know, types of businesses and institutions that function like this. Yeah, that's a good point, man. I mean, you know, like we we're talking about all these different institutions coming in here through different ways and, you know, different sort of ways to try and get an ETF or something to where they can get access to it. Like, I mean, if they have an endowment and, you know, they could do this like on an individual like group level, that would be a probably be a lot better. Mm -hmm. All righty. So everybody chew on that, but. Are we ready for the stupidest, which we saved for last? Oh, my goodness. Can you believe these guys? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually got this email directly, and that, that's how I found out about it. Um, yes. I, I used, <laughs> you I were part of the trade, pump. <laughs> yes, I used to trade shit coins on Yobit when I was a young, dumb Bitcoiner who still didn't know anything. <laughs> I... I mean, this. I mean, I have no idea what you guys are going to talk about because I didn't look at the story. But I cannot believe that any story Shame. is stupid. I cannot believe that any story is stupider on this You're roster wrong. than the Noriel You're Congress wrong. session. Seriously, You're dead pretty bad. Okay, so Yobit sent out an official email that they were going to pick one random coin and pump it every few minutes, ten times with one bitcoin for a total amount of 10 bitcoin they literally emailed all of their customers to tell them that they're going to pick a random shit coin on their exchange and pump it there's there was literally a timer on yobit.net yobit pump in dot 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 and a countdown timer <laughs> they they put this out through all of their different official communication platforms. And then scammers broke from the Ethereum scam um, strategy and started imitating Yobit accounts and scamming people into sending them cryptocurrencies for the impending Yobit pump. Hmm. I'm pretty and sure that's illegal. <laughs> they don't give a shit. They're in Russia. <laughs> you know what? They're promoting it on Facebook's platform. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. A shitcoin exchange, one of, one of the oldest and shittiest shitcoin exchanges, literally publicly announced they were going to do a pump on their own exchange. <laughs> yeah. It's... It's bad. Like you're saying, the emails went out and yeah, like people started going to support places and there's all these different accounts now and uh, people are losing their money. And I mean, yeah, it's a, 
<laughs> it's a weird world over here in crypto. I mean, like maybe it's like some big old average scam where the pump it and even the deal. It's like, let's just announce the pump and then we'll just like, you know, get all these little tangential side uh, hustles come in. Or, you know, I'd like I'd be interested to just sort of look at their books and see like what was the pump? What coin did they pump? You know, <laughs> what, what coin did they pump? Did it even work? I have no idea and I don't care. It's just I'm amazed at how unprofessional and insane and unethical this is. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was funny back in, you know, a year ago, a couple of years ago, yeah, where it was like, you know, pretty evident of like, uh, in, I think I remember the Monero subreddit, there was this guy who came in regularly. He's like, I'm in charge of the 3 p.m. pump. And people were just like, what do you do? It's like, I'm just in charge of this 3 p.m. pump. And, uh, you know, there's just always this sort of like, uh, you know, we're going to pump, come in, you know, you can make some money and uh, it's just moving volume around and, uh, you know, and uh, also just sort of taking advantage of people that want to take advantage. So uh, always be weary of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, fuck you, Obit. I guarantee you that they were probably insider trading the whole pre-pump and this is just a giant scam. But yeah. <laughs> on that note though that wraps her up for the day and takes us into final thoughts yeah it puts a nice bow on it and uh just my final thoughts just a uh speaking thought as always it seems like uh but um yeah i'm gonna take a, a couple of wednesdays off you guys uh know that life doesn't stop for the show and uh some things pile up that need some attention so i'm gonna jump over to that for uh the next couple of weeks, but, uh, you know, I'll still be back for the Sunday shows, but, uh, I'll be absent for the next couple of Wednesdays. And they're going to be shitty Wednesdays without you. Oh, uh, don't worry, bud. I'll, I'll still be there on the sidelines. I'll, I'll jump in the troll box with you. All right. Janine thought loaded. That's, that's your cue. Sorry, I was grabbing more thoughts. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I actually, <laughs> so I actually thought about, I forgot about uh, this tweet when we were talking about the Noriel stuff. I, am I even pronouncing his name right? Is that how you say his name, Noriel? I just uh, say Rubini. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Noriel, I'm going to say that because I think it's funny because of the L'Oreal. Um, but apparently one of the things he said during his testimony was that very few women or minorities are allowed in the blockchain space, which I thought was hilarious because like a bunch of women in Bitcoin were like, hello, we're here. We're fine. Uh, I think I even replied to this tweet and I said like, oh, wait, I'm not allowed. Was I supposed to ask permission? I'm sorry. <laughs> like <laughs> it's somewhere there. Uh, I just thought that was funny because that was one of the things he said. And it's so ironic that, you know, he has such such concern about the number of women in the blockchain space when he thinks it's full of shitheads. And at the same time, he's also a womanizer, like not exactly consistent. Um, <laughs> uh, the second thought, um, I mean, it might have might have to it might have been better as an actual story, but I thought this was uh, interesting that OXT changed their terms of service to include a restriction of usage section uh, where they say that they do not allow any officers, contractors, subcontractors, or staff acting on behalf of a government to use their services. 
Um, obviously, this is not legally enforceable because. Ah! <laughs> Actually, no. Actually, no, violating a website's term of service is now a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and anybody who uh, does this could probably be charged with a felony. Yes, Shinobi, but um, if you're talking about uh, an actual court of law, they would look at this and be like, um, excuse me, you're discriminating against agents of the state. Sorry, we are agents of the state. We can, you know, like... No one is actually going to enforce this particular that's things, restriction. Uh, that's how things, uh, you know, wind up in front of the Supreme Court when you argue that a, a cop can commit a felony just because they're a cop. Yes, but you have to. You you've noticed that courts are not exactly in favor of you know enforcing. Um, measures that limit the behavior of law enforcement agents, especially for things like this. Um, so I think, I don't know, is it legally enforceable? That's an open question. Um, but I just thought it was funny because even if it's not, it's like, yeah, they're putting it right in their terms of service that they don't allow that. Samurai, if you ever bust anybody doing this i will totally come on as a consultant and go call people retards in a courtroom i will totally do that for you guys <laughs> yeah because that 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 will go down very well it, it's, it's um, for the lulls yeah so uh if you guys haven't seen like several sh i don't know when i first mentioned this but there's been an ongoing search for Aryan and they still have not found him basically what ended up happening is that they found a canoe a very makeshift canoe that he had bought online before the trip they found that in one place they found his cell phone and i think a cell phone and uh or at least identity documents that had his picture and stuff on it they found those in a separate place and they basically they found a bunch of items that they believe belong to him in different places around like several kilometers apart um, in the area that he was last seen in Norway, I believe, um, which is just really it's very strange and uh, they still haven't found him. They they had a theory that he might have purposely gotten on a. Uh, on a ship uh, somewhere because apparently someone heard him made a, make a comment sometime in the past where he said like if he thought things were getting really bad he would just get on a boat because that would be the safest place uh, but it's really weird that they f he, he would just leave all of his stuff behind it's unclear like they don't some people were like looking at pictures of the, the kayak sorry I said canoe it was actually a kayak um, people were looking at pictures of the kayak and some were speculating that there was like holes in it in very specific places, but that could also just be damaged from wherever it was floating or hitting up against a shoreline. So really don't know. But the point is that he still hasn't been found. There really is no conclusive lead on where he might be or why he suddenly disappeared. So that's really sad because he's done a lot of work with um, information security, especially for journalists and other at-risk people. So it's really scary that he would just disappear suddenly like that. And um, I mean, I've heard from several people that 
you know, they don't, they're not excluding the possibility that he may have just, you know, been a, a bit of an asshole and just disappeared for whatever reason and not told anyone about it. Um, he might have had a good reason, though. Who knows? But it's just a very strange situation and they don't really know what to do now because it's like, what do you do when you find a bunch of stuff owned by a person in different places and there's no evidence of violence anywhere or anything like that? Like, there's no way of telling where he, what state of mind or state of being he is right now so what i don't know what people can do in that kind of situation but it's really weird and scary yeah it's uh you know upsetting to hear the way that that all turned out and um you know uh yeah you can only I'm, i mean like i'm not gonna say you know just stop looking and all that stuff because it's yeah it's just a hard story Yeah, it sucks. But hey, before we jet, real quick, uh, last final final thought. Uh, Ravi H, reach out to us on Twitter, man. Let us know what's going on in India. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, on that note, though, I guess that wraps it up for the day, and we will see you on Wednesday. So, toodaloo. Later, everyone. <laughs>